the writer's room as a thing is overrated. It is not the end-all be-all. In fact, half of the best stuff that you saw on TV at The Simpsons, if not more, came from people working on their own. It did not come from the room. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Bill Oakley's on the show. Bill is a Portland-based writer and producer known for his work on The Simpsons, where he was executive producer and showrunner for the seventh and eighth seasons, Futurama, Regular Show, and Mission Hill. His most recent shows include Portlandia, one of my personal favorites, Disenchantment, Chicago Party Aunt, and Close Enough on HBO Max. Bill is also popular on Instagram at ThatBillOakley, where he reviews fast food from the comfort of his car and is referred to as the Gordon Ramsay of fast food by the Rap Entertainment News. He's also been featured on the Netflix travel cuisine documentary, Somebody Feed Phil. In this interview, Bill and I talk about his path into animated television, how writers on animated shows were paid differently in the 80s and 90s versus today, how residuals work for television writers, the advantages and disadvantages of having a writing partner, what inspired him to become a social media food critic, and the strategies he implements as a writer to avoid distractions and enhance productivity. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Bill Oakley. Bill Oakley, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Are you in Portland right now? Uh-huh. Yes, I'm in Portland all the time, generally. Writing remotely then on this show close enough? We just finished that show. But yes, I have been, uh, all the work I have been doing for, for years, especially the past two years, has been remote. Mm-hmm. And Portland, how are things going down there, by the way? I'm up here near Seattle. Oh. So I'm very familiar with Portland. I've been down there a lot. I love that town. I, I love the food in Portland. It's amazing. The food scene is incredible here. Yes. But the news portrays it like a zombie apocalypse is happening I in the know. streets. Uh, it's very, <laughs> it, it, that is not accurate. I mean, look, the city has its problems. We definitely have an issue with uh, unhoused people. Mm -hmm. We definitely have issues with, we have a lot of issues with our cops, which are gradually being worked out. But these issues are not gigantic. And I think the thing is that like this narrative uh, got pushed a, a year, two years ago, that Portland was like burning down. Antifa was running amok, burning everything <laughs> down. And it's, that's just not the case. You know, it's a normal, right. you know, there, yes, we have our, we have some issues. But I wouldn't say that we have any issues that are significantly different than that that Seattle might have. Mm -hmm. It's just because it's very, every time Portland appears in the national news, it is on the topic of, is Portland a wasteland? <laughs> and so people get that stuck in their head. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not, especially because right-wing media wants to make it like, look at this terrifying example of a liberal city run amok. Right. <laughs> and it's such bullshit. <laughs> and, and there's a number of people in the right-wing media sphere who are able to profit from that narrative. Yeah. So that's why it continues. Agreed. Because nobody is nobody's going to any great lengths to give the, give you the truth. Yeah. Well, the truth isn't very exciting. Exactly. You know, it just doesn't uh, doesn't drive <laughs> exactly. ratings. Right. <laughs> so tell me why Portland and you know what brought you to that city? If I look at your IMDb, I would think this is a Hollywood guy. This is someone who's going to be in the mix in Los Angeles. That's why I still have my 310 area code on my phone. So the people will think that. <laughs> um, okay. They, uh, uh, we moved to Portland about over 13 years ago now, um, basically because I had kids and I wanted to raise them in a normal environment. 
and this port and Portland is a normal environment, far more normal than Los Angeles. Uh, and it's smaller. The kids can walk where they walk places where they want to go, you know, and it's much more like growing up in this, at least growing up in the seventies or eighties right here. Uh, you know, so that's one of the reasons that's the primary reason uh, I moved here also because it's close enough to Los Angeles that uh, I can go down in a car. So like, that's like, you could easily get to, you know, if you time it right, you can get there in three hours, three and a half hours. Um, and so that works to my advantage, obviously. And also things have kind of migrated. When I moved here, things were not quite as online as they are now. Now things are online regularly, uh, partially, partially because of COVID and partially because people have realized companies don't, why do they need to pay $20,000 a month for this office space when people can just work at home right. on Zoom, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the reason. But also Portland is culturally a place that I really enjoy. Um, it's really just the traffic is not generally very bad. You can get to, from one part of town to another in 10 minutes. And, you know, it's a fun place to live. And as you said at the beginning, the food scene is amazing. Mm-hmm. So like it just, and it's also got a lot of, um, you know, for better or for worse, as I said before, it's kind of a liberal bubble, which is fun to live in. <laughs> That's great. So you come from old school analog face-to-face writer's rooms, starting with Harvard Lampoon and transitioning into writing spec scripts for Seinfeld in the early 90s. And then, of course, Simpsons, which I'm sure was a face-to-face experience back in the 90s. And now you're working in a completely different environment, remotely in a different town. What challenges and opportunities does that create to work remotely like you do? I, I understand the benefits in terms of family, but I'm talking about creatively. Do you miss something when you're not sitting in a room with them in the same space? I got 11 different topics. Just to talk, I, got, I got so much to say about this topic. Um, I'm going to start with a, a thing that I often say. The writer's room as a thing is overrated. It is not the end-all, be-all. In fact, a lot of the best, at least half of the best stuff, that you saw on TV at The Simpsons, if not more, came from people working on their own. Mm. It did not come from the room. The room often did had a lot of funny stuff, yes, but because people have become more aware of the way the TV is made over the past 20 years, they often talk about the writer's room and executives in particular are enamored with, oh, let's get a room together. We're going to have all this energy, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's good. It works great some of the time. However, having a very talented, inspired writer write stuff by themselves wherever they want to be also works great. Like the room is a huge, the room has its upside and has its downside because the downside is it's a giant time wasting mechanism. (laughs) It is because you have been, first of all, and this is something I've learned during COVID because you have driven in some cases an hour, hour and a half to get there. You're not going to leave anytime soon because you already have a sunk cost of being there. So everybody it's like the writer's room is not going to be happening for two hours a day not going to be happening for four hours a day. It's going to be at least six, probably 12 many days because of the sunk cost of getting there. Okay. Then people know that they're going to be there for a certain amount of time. They start wasting time because no matter how much progress you make, you're not going to go home early. That's the thing. And that's, we finally stopped doing that at the Simpsons actually in our season eight. We said, if we get seven pages perfectly written, we can leave. And sometimes we'd leave at four, Hmm. you know, so that was great. But like the problem is a lot of times you're just going to be there because that's the way it always has been, especially if the guy who's running the show, the guy or lady who is running the show doesn't want to go home, then you're screwed because the person, if the person has no home life and is going to go home to an empty apartment and sit there sadly, 
They're going to keep you there to be their paid friends mm-hmm. all evening. And I've heard so many horror stories about dozens of shows, especially some of the shows that you people love where this happened. So, okay. Now that said, that's the writer's room coda. Now that's the writer's room preamble. Before now, you, before you go on, I want to interject one anecdote there. And I'm sorry to break your train of thought, but I interviewed, who was it? It was a showrunner for Aloha Kami Aloha MD. It was a Disney plus show. And, and she said that one of the, the worst things that can happen is if your showrunner gets divorced uh, as a writer, because oh, yeah. <laughs> then it's like work becomes their entire world. And they assume they just project that onto everybody in the writer's room and you're stuck in there forever. But sorry to interrupt your train of thought. That's 100% correct. That's 100% correct. And it could also be that the person just has a, is a weird introvert and doesn't want to go home to the, their empty apartment. You know, there's a number of other ways that that can go wrong. So anyway, that said, now I prefer a, a hybrid model. And I would say this was like when I worked on the show Disenchantment a couple of years ago on Netflix, um, I worked in the room a couple of days a week. I would go to LA for, you know, two days a week or every other week and be in the room. And the rest of the time I was online. Now that time, in that scenario, I was the only one who was online. Everyone else was actually in the physical room. I like going to the room periodically because the thing about being in the room is you can use your physicality. You know, you can use your volume and your space and your arms. You can act things out, which is, which is helpful and is fun. However, it's not necessary to do that all the time. So I, I honestly prefer this whole, the new way of doing it, at least the new way for now, which is on Zoom. And then maybe sometime you get together in real life. I, the last two shows I worked on for the past two years, they didn't even have physical offices. It was all on Zoom. Now, the good thing about that, I mean, yes, it, it is fun to see people. It is fun to get out of your house and see people in a work environment. It's not fun to do it for 12 hours a day, every day of the week. Right. It's fun to do it for a little bit. And Zoom is far more efficient. Like the sh- both the shows I worked on, you don't waste time as much because you know that when you're done, you can leave as opposed to, well, we're going to be here for eight hours. I also think, that even weirdo showrunners who don't want to go home don't really want to stay on Zoom for 12 hours either. So that allows, like, I prefer this. I think it's better people. And this is something that we learned at The Simpsons when we first started working there. People who have outside lives are more, are better writers. They come, they bring more experiences to the table. You know, they bring more references to the table. People who spend all their time interacting with other comedy writers, all their jokes are about like what they ordered for lunch or someone else's <laughs> bad behavior. Like it's like the the narrower their the narrower their world is, the more tunnel vision they have about what culture is like. If they don't get out, when was the last time they went to a Walmart? You know, I'm not saying I love Walmart, but like you don't if you don't have the cultural references that people have, you you become <laughs> you become less valuable as a writer. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So. Going back in time, and I'm jumping around a little bit here because I know you have a hard stop, but your inspirations, I read that Mad Magazine was an inspiration for you as a young child. And it was for me, even though I'm a couple of years younger than you, Mad Magazine for me was kind of almost like a taboo thing, even though it wasn't a dirty magazine, it certainly was irreverent uh-huh. and something that uh, I looked at as like, if my mom bought it for me in the grocery aisle. I was thinking I got away with something. Uh-huh. But beyond that, what were your inspirations on television and on uh, film that called you to writing for television? Uh, I didn't intend originally to be a writer for television. I intended to be a cartoonist. Hmm. Um, and so it was mad, absolutely. And National Lampoon. I started reading National Lampoon. At the time, people don't know National Lampoon these days. But it was just as influential as mad for an older audience 
between 1970 and maybe like 1985. And it was far... It pushed the boundaries, believe me. If you look at it today, you would be shocked. Every single page would shock you. But uh, so it was that. I wanted to be a cartoonist, and I started out as a cartoonist when I got on the Harvard Lampoon, and that's what I did. Hmm. Um, and then I gradually started to draw a little bit less. As we had so many great artists, my art was not really needed. I started to draw a little bit less and started to write a little bit more. Um, and I still didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. I mean, I kind of wanted to go write for David Letterman, which was a, a lot of people on the Lampoon had done previously because it seemed like a really fun job and it seemed like the place to be or Saturday Night Live. And my partner, Josh Weinstein and I did not get hired to either of those places. And we had kind of a bumpy path until we finally came to regular tele, to, you know, scripted television. Hmm. So why a writing partner? I haven't seen that very often in, in writers that they stick together for so long like you did with Josh. And what did that bring to the mix? What did that give you that the solo writing experience didn't? The real honest truth is it's so much more fun to write with a partner than it is to write by yourself. Writing by yourself is hard and boring. <laughs> writing with a partner is fun. It is, is far more fun. But the downside is, and it particularly becomes an issue as you get older and have your family, you've got to split the salary. You've got to split one salary between two people, oh. which sucks, especially when you both have a family. And so that's like, honestly, like, I think people like, that's why people like the writer's room because you have a collaborative, you team talk back and forth. You're, you don't have to be on every second and sitting by yourself alone writing is hard and boring. It's the worst part of the job. So going back to Simpsons, were you splitting your salary at the Simpsons or were you both? Yeah. Really? We split every salary we ever had all the way up until, um, you know, recently. Oh my goodness. I had no idea looking at your filmography and the background information about Josh, that you were actually truly joined at the hip. I mean, financially on these projects. So when right, and what what really sucks is because you actually end up being some of the lowest paid people. If you on the show, like you are, because you're splitting the salary. Even if you're running the show, you're making less than somebody who's a co-producer <laughs> um, in general, which just continually annoys the shit out of you when you're doing that. You obviously consented to this. But when you get hired as a showrunner or a writer initially, what is the distinction between, okay, I'm hiring this person as a writer or these two people as writers versus I'm hiring these two people as co-writers? I'm trying to wrap my brain around that concept. There's no such thing as co-writers. I mean, there, there isn't really such a thing in general. It's not permitted by the Writers Guild, I don't think. A team, a bona fide team, Writers Guild has a thing called a bona fide team. And it gets hired. It's such a good deal for the showrunner, especially if it's a, it's a room situation because you get two people in the room for the price of one. Mm. And now, now, when they write scripts, you're still just paying, you only have to pay one script fee, but you got it written by two people. That doesn't mean it's going to be any better than one written by a single person. Mm -hmm. However, you get two bodies in the room for the price of one, which is why a team is a good deal if you're trying to staff your show on a budget. Oh, that's probably a good way to get your foot in the door too, because, yeah, you know, it's like yeah. an incentive. Hey, you're getting two for the price of one. And I've had agents, we were running shows, try to fake, try to create fake teams. Like if you hire this guy, I'll team him up with another guy and you get another guy for free, which is not allowed by the writer's <laughs> guild. And, and so, yeah, that's like, but it is, it's just been a thing issue for 30 or 40 years in the writer's guild, because also they don't allow teams on, at least they didn't, they don't allow teams on talk shows. So like uh, Colbert or Letterman, Saturday Night Live, they don't have teams hmm. because you have to pay two salaries. They don't have that thing that they do on, on sitcoms. So that's why you see so few teams get hired on, you know, Colbert, John Stewart, et cetera, because they'd have to pay two salaries. They don't allow for teams on variety shows. Can you tell me about your writing process? You talked about how hard it is to write and how boring it can be. And, and I'm 
with you, even though I'm not a professional writer, I am an aspiring writer and I do write for work and I write creatively. It is excruciating for me in terms of just getting the motivation to type that first letter, the fear and anxiety surrounding uh, (laughs) the whole process of having somebody critique what you're writing. But I'm curious about your process and how you work through those issues if you still experience them this many years after becoming a writer. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's two things. There's both writing with Josh and writing separately. There were a couple of different, we've tried a couple of different things over the years. When we first did it, this we did it the hard way, which is that we started, like, I don't know why we did this. I mean, it resulted in some classic Simpsons episodes. So obviously it worked, but it was arduous. We basically start on page one and write all the way through. Like everything, you don't move on until the line is perfect. And so like that was arduous, it was hard. And every single time we did it, it was like pulling teeth. It was agonizing. However, it resulted, it was fun. It was fun because we were doing it with together. I mean, that was the fun part, but you know, it wasn't that fun after hour 72, we're working on the same page. So that I don't recommend that way. Um, although it worked for us, it also resulted in a lot of wasted time because we always end up writing a script that was 50% too long. Then we have to cut stuff that we spent days and days crafting perfectly. So after several years of doing that, we adjusted our format to be, to do what is normally done by writers, which is to write a kind of crappy fast version first. And and so that's like, a, you know, I can't express how much easier that makes everything. And ultimately, I've the product, the, res, the end result is generally just as good as long as you continue to be perfectionist about it. But mm. it's much easier to start with something than it is with nothing. Yeah. So like, that's why people, a lot of people advocate what they call like the vomit pass or the rough, they have a lot of different names for it, yeah. which is just sit down, write the thing as fast as you possibly can. Don't go back, don't revise it, just get a, how many number of pages done until it's done. And it can be just garbage, even fillered lines, but then working on it, you're rewriting, you have the confidence of knowing that it's done, at least some version of it's done. Yeah. And then you can tinker with it as long as you like. That way works a lot better for me. Josh and I started doing that after several years of doing it the other way. And it worked a lot better. And basically, when we did it, we would divide up halves. So we, you know, I take the first act, you take the second act. We do, and then we switch it back and forth until we were happy. Yeah. So done is better than perfect. I cannot express that enough. It's like that's the thing. It is so, and you can fix it. You always can fix it. That is fixing it is much easier than coming up with it from scratch. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I have learned is yes, it's just to answer your earlier question. I'll say the most interesting and valuable book I ever read on writing, and I only read it a few years ago, was Stephen King's book on writing. I've read that. Which had so much, yeah, I mean, you know, it had so much great advice in it. The only quote I remember from that book, it's one quote, ass plus seat equals writing. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) There you go. The thing about it is that it's always, every single day, it's like jumping into a cold pool. Every morning, starting writing, starting writing is the worst. Like once you have been going for 30, 45 minutes, Generally, at least in my experience, it gets a lot easier. But the starting is the hard part, which is why people put it off. Mm-hmm. And also, the longer the longer you go without writing, the harder it is to start. Which is why Stephen King writes every single day. And so, if you write every single day, even for just an hour or two, getting started the next day is easier. It's still a little bit like the cold pool, but it's not like a cold pool that you've ignored for two weeks. The, the longer you've been, the harder it is to get the gears, the rusty gears, all cranking again. You know, if the gears were cranking recently, then it's easier to get them cranking in my experience. Yeah. I think the same thing applies to working out too. Anything that's hard. Yeah, I agree. So tell me about your process of the never ending distractions, the doom scrolling. Nah. We go from pandemic to World War Three. 
you know, the <laughs> election of 2016 and 2020. I mean, you name it, there's just so many excuses to not write and to pay attention to other bullshit. What are your personal tactics to cope with that problem? Let me just answer. That's, it's partially an answer to this question and partially answer to your previous question as well. There's different types of, of writing as well, which I think, you, and nobody ever accounts for this because the writing, when you're just getting an idea, you know, like there's very primitive writing. Like I need an idea for a TV show. I need some characters for the TV show. That's not typing writing that you're going to sit at the typewriter and, and, or your computer or whatever you type on or your legal pad. I find that very hard to do when you're not, when I'm at a computer, I have to go walk around for that. Like the brainstorming stage. So the brainstorming stage is also hard, but people, including me, tend to not count it as writing, but it is, it's the most fundamental part of writing. And it's also hard and it doesn't, it can't, in my opinion, it can't really be done effectively sitting at a keyboard because it requires deep thought that I find the keyboard. Now that transition into the, the keyboard, the computer, very distracting. As you said, the only way that I, when I have to write, okay, when I have to write, it's generally because I have a deadline that is either artificial or has been created by me and I need the money. The, the money is a great motivator. You know, <laughs> like it's like I would be hard pressed to write something for fun. I think, you know, like, like I'm not going to, I'm not that going to, I know people, a lot of people write for fun, which I find baffling because it's so hard. <laughs> like I, I write for the money and I do the stuff I do for fun is more like my Instagram stuff, which is not really writing. It's more like, there's a little bit of writing involved, but it's also making videos. It's the whole process, which is fun. That's a fun process. Yeah. Sitting by yourself and typing is not a fun process, in my opinion. In my opinion, I've never liked it. So when I have to do it, this is what I do. I turn off, I have what I have that program called Freedom, which locks out the internet. And I turn that on. I put the phone, I turn off the phone and put it in another room. And there's no hope of looking at the internet. There's no phone. There's no distractions. And I say, I'm going to write for two hours. You got to like some, I have this kind of thing. This is a good thing also. It's like this block that has a timer on it hmm. and you can like turn it like, and you, and a timer, it doesn't have any distractions. It will say that you're for 30 minutes. You can take a break for five minutes, hmm. that kind of thing. So I do that. I also tend to use a thing. I use a program called write room, which is I, well, either final draft, which I have to use for a script, but if it's not a script, I use write room, which um, takes up the whole screen. So there's not other stuff to look at on the screen. Um, that's basically it. And the only thing that gets me really going is also a routine. And I start in the morning, like if I get on the, I've learned over the years that it's much easier to write in the morning than it is in the afternoon, at least for me, because as the day goes on, there are more and more things demanding your attention that knock you out of your zone. So I start in the morning as early as possible, uh, sometimes before I take a shower or whatever, or right after that. And I say, I'm going to write for two or three hours. I'm going to lock out the internet. I'm not going to think of anything else until I've done X number of pages. Hmm. That, that's the process. That's discipline. Man. I don't use that very much. Let me say, I only use that when it's an emergency, which it always ends up being because I put it off for so long. <laughs> You're a procrastinator. Yeah. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So let's talk about your Instagram and your fast food reviews. I've looked at those, and they're so fun. Thank you. What inspired you to start that channel, and where has it taken you that has surprised you? Because I, I did see a tweet that you made it onto the History Channel. Yes, and that's the fun part. Like that. Okay, so let me say, 
that's my hobby. It doesn't pay any money, but maybe it will. <laughs> and then I don't have to worry about writing so much. <laughs> that like I started, I've always had a lot of opinions about not only just fast food, but snack food, frozen food. Anybody who looks at my Instagram, which is that bill locally, every day there's something about food, usually on the story or people mail me stuff, a lot of it behind me um, from all over the country, all over the world. It's snack food, frozen food. I've always had an extreme interest in that. Like I wanted to be the first to try the new Oreo, the new burger, McDonald's, whatever. Uh, I, I like that kind of stuff. And then I share my opinion about it. You know, for years, I would share it with my friends and family. They got tired of it. So I started sharing it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, I realized it might be more fun to do a video than it is just to type a prose review of the new Quarter Pounder Deluxe. And I kind of taught myself. The first time I did it, I didn't even know how to edit three shots together. It took me hours. And then it seemed like people liked it. I don't, again, I don't quite know what people like about it, but I like that they like it. So I just kept on doing it. And with each uh, one, I would get a bit more encouragement, more followers. And then I just kind of, it just kind of became a, it's my hobby now. Instead of some people to play golf and some people go fishing, my hobby is making videos or, and critiquing stuff, food thing, food items. And I gradually got taken more seriously by the world for this. I have my award show at the end of the year, the Steamies, which celebrities appear on, you know, as I rate what I've eaten over the year. And then I've started to make friends with other food, you know, uh, food types like Mike Harris, who was online, who was the former head chef at McDonald's, guys who were the editors of Restaurant Business Magazine. And I kind of got into this world. And now, recently, like I'm, uh, God, I'm appearing on Somebody Feed Phil. Uh, when he comes to Portland uh, this year. And then I've been on the History Channel. On now, this season, I'm on um, The Food That Built America. I'm on most of the episodes, sometimes just a little, sometimes a lot, you know, offering my take on various things from, you know, Carvel ice cream to uh, Pabst beer to Subway subs, you know. So that's like, I like doing this. And I hope, I actually hope that at some point it starts to pay something because it's really fun. What I like about it, uh, to be really specific, is that I like, I don't have to go through the same process I have to go through on TV, which I still hate, which is trying <laughs> to convince other people that your stuff is good. I hate that. I hate pitching, mm-hmm. which I've had to do for thirty over 30 years. You've got to go into an office with a person who most likely, in many cases, does not have a good sense of humor and convince them that your project is worth purchasing. And even once the project has been purchased, you have to convince them that your way of doing it is correct. And then even once you're on, you, have to, you never have to stop convincing gatekeepers, gatekeepers that your stuff is good. Right. However, today, you can just put the stuff right on the air without going through anybody. And that, every time it gives me such immense pleasure to make, I'm going to, I go, I said, I'm going to go review that RV sandwich. And three hours later, the thing is on there, you know, whatever, 10,000, 20,000 views, and it didn't have to go through any process. And I know that somewhere Hollywood executives are sitting there wishing they could have given me notes or wishing they, <laughs> wishing they could have somehow not bought my project, but tough. They're cut out of the process. And that is my, that's why I delight in it every time I do it. Yeah. Let me tell you what I like about your channel, your Instagram videos is you go in thinking, all right, this is going to be ironic. This has to be a a gag or a goof or something, but you're so genuine and authentically you when you're talking about your love or your hatred of whatever you're eating and you're, you're eating fast food, which is something that you would not expect a Hollywood writer to be leaning into and to want to showcase. For instance, the Santa Fe chicken video. 
That was a real departure. That was a real departure from my usual format. That was a little little irony in there. I mean, with the soft music in the background and like. But people liked it. that. Was my most viewed popular my most popular video of all time. Yeah, and the whole thing it was it was intended to be tongue in cheek. That it was kind of a parody of a Bob Ross type PBS right. type thing. <laughs> but people didn't seem to care. They loved it anyway. And the sincerity. I was sincere. I was sincere. But I really lean into it with the music and the guitar music, acoustic guitar stuff. So like mm-hmm. that one, I'll do another one like that. I like that. You know, I'll try to do the, the keep, keep it to be a fast food favorite type thing and uh, bring that format back because it was popular. And people like a lot of people, this is something that I have noticed, seem to think of me as like their substitute dad. Um, and I get a lot of that. People call people actually call me dad a lot. And, <laughs> and so, okay, that's great. Also, I think that in this day and age, to see a middle-aged white man on your screen and he's not furious about something <laughs> is <laughs> is soothing to some it's to some people you know because like every tucker carlson and all this crap and it's like everyone's so mad yeah. about everything i'm just happy to share my fast food discovery with you the uh santa fe chicken episode reminded me a little bit of this uh he's on instagram and he's also on tiktok it's, i think it's called old time hawkeye He's out in the Midwest somewhere, and he has this handlebar mustache. He must be in his late 20s, early 30s. But every episode is like, hey, buddy, here I made some <laughs> I made some hot chocolate. It's really soft, like almost ASMR type of experience. And everything is so positive, and he's always making really simple food. There's a channel. I don't know how much you're on TikTok, but there's a, there's a lot of channels that cook really amazing food out in the forest. Like they take a slap. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah, I'll I'll send you some links Please. to it afterwards. But there's something very satisfying about watching cooking channels and videos and seeing that happen out in the forest, right? And so he has this really fancy knife and he's chopping up onions and making really just amazing dishes. Like, how did you bring all these ingredients out there into the middle of the forest? Well, this old time Hawkeye guy, and I I can't remember the exact channel name. He cooks really simple things, like mm-hmm. really basic but comfort food mm-hmm. and desserts, French toast and things like that. But it's always a really soft voice. But the reason I bring that up is that your videos have that same that same vibe where it's this comforting. It's like, okay, you're right. There is no there's no politics in here. There's no rage. It's just sharing something that you're passionate about, you care about. And it's genuine. That's why your videos, I think, are going to take off even more than they have already. Thank you. It's impressive. But I'm glad you found something that eliminates the red tape for creativity. Yeah. You know, being able to just put something out there. It really is delightful. And I think that's people, you know, this is when people ask me for advice about breaking into TV writing. I'm like, I always say, well, first of all, the path is not as clear as it once was. The, it used to be 30 years ago, you had to write a spec script, you had to get it in the right hands, and you get stuck in a writer's room, you know, hopefully for a, a nice decades-long career. However, those career, first of all, many of those jobs don't even exist anymore because of the fact that there's so many shows, and every show works for 10 weeks, and then you're unemployed again. It's not like it was it, the, the market, the TV market is not like it was for some, you know, obviously, if you work on Law & Order or NCIS or whatever. It, you might as well be 1959 because you're making 22 episodes a year, you know, and it's just the TV. But most of TV is not like that anymore. Most of TV is here's the thing that's on Netflix. They're going to order eight episodes. You're going to write the eight episodes as quickly as possible, and then they're going to get rid of everybody. That's the way that most shows operate these days. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite, you constantly have to be looking for your next job, period, which is annoying. Um, and that's like why I say to people, 
you might want to consider doing it yourself. Mm. You know, if you were able to get a million followers on YouTube making whatever videos you wanted to, you'd be making the same amount as you would as a co-producer or whatever on a TV show, and you'd have complete control over everything. So like, that's like, if, if your goal is to get your voice out into the world, it's not easy to get a million followers on YouTube, obviously, but it's not easy to break into TV writing and work your way up either. So like, that's what I tell people in any case, there's more opportunities for creative expression and for making money off it. Mm-hmm. And, but it's hard, but it's also hard to get into TV writing. And then you're at the mer- constantly at the mercy of everyone else, whereas you're not on, you know, on your YouTube channel, for instance. It's interesting how the barrier has been lowered or eliminated basically to being able to create and get it seen, Yeah, as you say, in three hours yeah. from the point of, all right, you have an idea. And then three hours later, it's actually out in the world being seen by how many followers you have. And now with TikTok, which I find to be scarily addicting, mm-hmm. I'm kind of worried about <laughs> where that's going to take America and take the world. But there's so many amazing things happening on TikTok and YouTube and now Instagram too. In terms of your professional writing and what's happening right now, you mentioned Close Enough just wrapped up. That Was it the third season that wrapped up? Yeah. I only saw two seasons on HBO Max. So there's a- Yeah. The third season is in production now. Okay. So how did you get involved with that project? And I noticed Matt Price was a creator on the show. Did you have a connection with him? I worked with him years ago. This It's a weird thing because I have been working with, this is say, JG Quintel is the creator of everything. He's the creator of regular show. He's the creator of Close Enough. And uh, he is the, you know, even though I'm nominally the head writer, he's still in charge of everything on that, on both of those shows. So I worked with him in 2009 when he was just a young guy trying to uh, get, try, regular show was a short that they were trying to, to turn into a TV show, TV series, a cartoon network. And so I worked with him for like two weeks helping him turn it into what the executives wanted to hear as a pitch for a TV series. And it took off. I worked with him on the first couple episodes and that show became a massive success. Um, and uh, then I heard from him again about eight years later, he's going to start a new show, which is close enough. At the time it was called Splitting Rent and asked if I would come in with him and the other writers to kind of help shape that show. And Matt Price was amongst those writers back then. So I worked with him for several months in like in like 2014 and then he called this year and it's like, hey, the show has a different name. <laughs> it's on a different network. And, and, and would you like to come uh, be head writer on it? And I was like, sure. So that was how that happened. It was just it, it was an interesting series of very sporadic occasions on which I worked with him on, on various projects over the years. And he's a great guy to work with. He's a very talented, very funny guy. I've seen several episodes of the show. It's, it's really funny and different. These adult-oriented I don't know how to describe it other than, you know, it's cartoons for adults, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But these shows, I find that as I get older, I'm more open to watching animation for adults than I ever have been because they're just getting really, really good. Yeah. There's a lot out there, but how would you describe this show for my listeners close enough? It's very surreal. It really helps if you've seen regular show because then I can use the grammar of that show. It's extremely surreal. It's a domestic the basic the basics of it are extremely regular sitcom. It's a, a couple with a little kid, and in order to save money, allows their friends, their divorced friends, to move in with them, or they all move in together rather into an apartment. So it's a couple with a little kid, a young couple with a little kid moving in with their divorced friends, an apartment in Los Feliz in Los Angeles, right? But and the stories often start out with kind of a d- domestic sitcom-y type premise, but then they become extremely surreal. And if you're familiar with the humor of JJ Quintel from the regular show, you'll know what I mean. 
but they don't like this is not a normal comedy show it's in nuts <laughs> it's it goes crazy like even though sometimes the premises sound like regular domestic comedy you're always going to be surprised by the crazy crap that happens and by crazy i mean it could be science fiction it could be surreal it could be ghosts it could be some type of thing you've never thought of before because it's some of the ideas are are mind-blowing and it's it's like it always takes you to places that you didn't expect also it's nice and short like the episodes are 11 minutes apiece um and when you watch it you get two episodes it's it's nice and short so it's therefore it's not doesn't have to go through the motions that some shows do which is like stretching the story to be three acts making sure you have your act breaks this show crams a ton of entertainment into 11 minutes and it's often extremely unexpected i watched the last episode of season two where Emily was big in Cromania. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny one. It's really funny, and it's it's actually kind of heartfelt, too, and it's a fun show. Are you finding that there's a separation between writers in animation and writers in live-action television, that those worlds really don't collide very often? Tell us your experience with that, because you've been in animation for a long time. Yes, and it's extremely... It's, it's it will take hours to, i have to go in about 15 minutes but it will take hours to tell you the whole story that i will tell you the thing is that it's um yes to answer your question there is a weird segregation because i don't want to have to tell you the whole 70 year history of this but basically it, it's divided into animated shows that are covered by the writers guild and animated shows that aren't okay and the thing about it is this whole thing was invented when there weren't cartoons for adults the whole system that we still currently operate under is when cartoons were 100 percent for kids they were all cranked out by hanna barbera or whatever and the writers guild didn't cover that stuff because what happens is in those shows in many of those shows the people who did the storyboards the person who drew them also made up the story as they did a comic book they kind of made up the stories they went along so they weren't they didn't have writers in many cases you don't see credited writers on old cartoons you see story by or whatever and that was the guys who made up the story who drew it who drew like a comic book version of it while making up the story and some shows are still like that like Sp spongebob for instance the guys who just very creative geniuses who storyboard that show storyboarded that show made up the stuff so they didn't have like writers who sat and wrote scripts and many kids shows are still like that okay and that's the way it was period and so they were not covered by the writers guild they're covered by motion picture screen cartoonists union which is under IATSE. okay writers guild never dealt with that and this didn't become an issue until the simpsons there wasn't any cartoons for on tv you know in grown-up tv primetime tv until the simpsons it became a giant issue when the simpsons became a huge deal family guy King of the Hill, all those shows, even my show, Mission Hill, there was a big wave in the 90s, late 90s, to unionize those shows and make them Writers Guild. And it was a huge struggle. And it finally happened. So the Writers Guild covers, quote unquote, primetime animation, right? Still doesn't cover things that are not primetime animation. And this is where it gets muddy because starting around 2005, primetime is no longer a thing. Streaming services, like what's BoJack Horseman? Is that primetime? Right. Well, it's streaming to watch it any time of day. So like some shows are covered by the Writers Guild, like for instance, BoJack Horseman is, Disenchantment. Some shows on Netflix are, many shows are not. And that's the problem because when you're not covered by the Writers Guild, you don't get any residuals ever. Like The Simpsons, you could make a, four, if you were 20 episodes of The Simpsons, you could live for the rest of your life on the residuals. And, but it wasn't Writers Guild when we were there. So what happens is there's a weird segregation between you know, the people who work in non-primetime animation get paid a fraction of what they get paid. They don't have health insurance, not nearly as good, and they don't get any residuals. Hmm. It's a huge ripoff, especially because the shows are, are of equivalent quality in many cases. 
You know, there's many shows that are streaming on Hulu, for instance, that are not Writers Guild, that are just as good or just as professional as the Writers Guild shows, but they're not covered by the Writers Guild because the company wants to save money and they do save a ton of money by doing this. And it's going to be a thing. It's been a thing for decades. Eventually, there's going to be some sort of revolt where the people on these shows all band together and go on strike to get covered by the Writers Guild. But I don't know when it's going to happen. Anyway, that's the story. That's the short version of the story. I'm glad you went into that because my very next question was going to be syndication and residuals. And my impression was that anybody who wrote for The Simpsons was basically set for life. <laughs> but it sounds like a pre-Writers Guild. <laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Anybody who wrote for The Simpsons when it was Writers Guild, which was after season 10, if you, yeah, might be doing quite well. Yeah. Those of us who wrote for the show before season 10, you still get residuals, but they were negotiated at the basic cable rate. So the residuals, as I say, residuals that Josh, first of all, Josh and I have to split the residuals. So we get, so that's one thing. And furthermore, it's probably, I don't know, it's probably about 30 or 20 or 30% of what you would get if the show had been writer's guild. Right. So it's not, you know, it's enough to get your car repaired once a year. <laughs> that's about <laughs> as much as, as much as it is. That's interesting. So really the hustle then is if you want to have a sustainable career where you're not scrambling from project to project and you're building up some sort of residual income every year is to do some work for Writers Guild projects at least a few times a year if possible. Absolutely. And you have to, if you want, if you're in the Writers Guild, just to maintain your insurance. You know, to get your health insurance, you got to do at least one project a year. What is the strategy to get into Writers Guild projects initially? Do you need to go to LA? And if not, how do you break in and try out, so to speak, and submit writing samples and get considered for Writers Guild projects? Well, it's the same way. That's the same way that it would, would have been in 1970. You have to write a sample script, spec script. Basically, that's still the coin of the realm for that type of thing, mm -hmm. is you write a script for free of a show that you like to show that you can write television in the format. And also, ideally, you have a second script that was one that you made up from scratch that was not someone else's show. And that's still the you know how you get hired on the majority of shows. Although, as I said, people also now get hired because they have really funny Twitter feeds or they have funny YouTube things and stuff like that. So it's not exactly the same as it was. Hmm. Although that's still the general coin of the realm. I suspect also for drama, I'm talking about comedy. For dramas, it's probably just the same as it always was. Right. You know, the, the, like dramas, as I said, are still kind of in that universe of TV 1959. So um, for comedy, it's a little different. And just like with your content on Instagram, that's how you got considered for Food Channel roles. Right. Yes. Or Food Channel, you know, appearances is you're doing this organic material that you're putting out on social media for free, but you're being seen and heard by important people that give you opportunities. That's fun. It's very, it's very fun when that happens. Yes. Well, Bill, I know you got to get going, but I really appreciate you sharing your story with my listeners and I'll be following you on social media and checking out all of your food related appearances. Now that I know what channels you're on in terms of thank you, the history channel. And also what's the name of that show? Somebody feed Phil. Yes, that's on Netflix. Uh, stars Phil Rosenthal, okay, uh, who was the creator actually of uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. That show, and it's a food show. It's been very successful, and he travels the world sampling different cuisines. And he came to Portland a few months ago, and I appear on that uh, his Portland episode. So keep a lookout for that if you're into food TV. You got to watch that show. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show, Bill. Thanks, Brian. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? 
Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.